0: This week on the podcast, I have Jeff Graham. He is the author of a really interesting book of which I will pull out of my bag right now. And the title is Dear Chairman, Boardroom Battles and the Rise of Shareholder Activism. Um, Funny story. uh, Those of you who listen to the show regularly know I've had the former uh, SEC chairman, Arthur Levitt, uh, as a guest twice, once, just to talk about Arthur Lever type stuff, and another was a segment dedicated to changes in regulation. They were both really interesting. anyway, um, one day I get an email from Arthur and he writes, "I have an interesting young man you should you should meet." He wrote the book, Dear Chairman. why does that sound familiar? It turns out two of the guys in my office had already read it. Both of them really liked it. and so, I write back to Arthur. Uh, yeah, I'm interested in in uh, speaking to him, but full disclosure, uh, you know, in bailout nation, I kind of trashed his dad, who happens to be Senator Phil Graham, and I've said stuff about his mom in print. Nothing ad hominem or anything. Just I've written critically about about what they've done professionally. And you know, we really should. Is that okay? Is that going to be a problem? Should we disclose that? And Arthur writes back. That's not going to be a problem. Uh, okay, fine. So, so instead of sending a separate email, Arthur just replies to that email with um, my comments to Jeff. Copies copies me and um, hey, you guys should get together uh, and and talk about the book on masters in business. And I kind of do a you know a facepalm. Oh, Arthur, you really don't have the email skills. You should. But anyway um uh, jeff was a good sport about it and uh, growing up the son of a a senator um uh it wasn't the first time someone had had been critical of his dad so if you were at all interested in activist investing or or the history of of value investing uh, i thought this was a really interesting conversation so with no further ado here is my conversation with jeff graham This is Masters in
1: Business with Barry Ritholtz on Bloomberg Radio.
0: My guest today is Jeff Graham. Let me give you a little background on Mr. Graham. He is the founder of Bandera Partners, which is a hedge fund located here in New York City. Mm -hmm. He is a graduate of the University of Chicago, got his MBA from Columbia School of Business, where he is currently an adjunct professor. He is also on the boards of several publicly traded companies, He comes from an interesting family. He is the son of Senator Phil Graham and Wendy Graham. And most interestingly to me, he is the author of the book, Dear Chairman, Boardroom Battles and the Rise of Shareholder Activism. Jeff Graham, welcome to Bloomberg. Uh,
1: Thanks for having me. I'm a big fan of the show.
0: Oh, well, that's terrific. Thank you. And I enjoyed your book. I'm like halfway through it and, and really enjoyed it. Several people in my office read it. And recommended it. I love the origin story you tell in the very beginning of the book of William Schlensky, who got two shares of stock in the Chicago Cubs, and that led essentially to the rise of shareholder activism. <laughs> For people who may not be familiar with the history of the Chicago Cubs, what happened
1: with Mr. Schlensky? Sure. Well, so Bill Schlensky got two shares in the Cubs as a birthday gift. How old was he at the time? I think he was um, 18 or 19. Okay. And he decided like, look, you know, we've all been in, you know, enduring these these uh, years of terrible baseball. And he thought it, you know, was uh, driven by the fact that they did not have lights on Wrigley Field. It's so
0: this is this is in the '40s in or the '60s. '60s, yeah. Most of Major League Baseball had moved to night games. They were really popular. Yeah. Crosstown rival White Sox were getting quadruple. The oh attendance. yeah, they were
1: getting like you know fifteen uh, to eighteen thousand people a night. And And 4,000 people
0: will come into the Cub games. Yeah,
1: because they're like, on a Wednesday afternoon, you know, people have to work. (laughs) Right. And so um, he thought, well, you know, this is uh, a feeding the poor performance of the Cubs. And um, uh, um, he sued them as a shareholder, uh, saying that, you know, you're neglecting your uh, your shareholders by refusing to put lights onto, uh, onto Wrigley Field. So what
0: was the outcome of the suit?
1: He lost. Uh, basically, the defense of the Wrigleys uh, was that, look, I mean, you know, we care about the shareholders, but we care about the, uh, the stakeholders too, including the uh, the community.
0: So the the business judgment rule basically exactly. carried the day. Yeah, and- which meant that they're they're not responsible for being correct.
1: It just has to be an exercise of their judgment, right or wrong. Well. Like and they were very clear that they thought that it would be extremely bad for the neighborhood of Wrigley Field mm-hmm. if they put lights on on Wrigley Field, and that the board, you know, uh, made the judgment that that was the right thing to do. But in the long run, economics uh, wins, and, and eventually they had to, yeah, to light up. Like the but, league essentially forced them to put those lights up.
0: So shareholder activism goes long before the 1960s. You use the example of the Dutch East India Company, and shareholders were angry. About self dealing, about the directors. How did that manifest itself? Yeah.
1: Well, I mean, like, I think uh, through history, like, you've uh, seen, uh, you know, well, owners uh, meddle. Mm-hmm. And then, you know, like, you do um, have this inherent uh, you know, problem in the system the principal it's- agency conflict. So yeah, that, exactly. So that you have people running
0: the management, running a business essentially on behalf of the owners. Yeah. And that creates a, a little bit of conflict for the managers to enrich themselves at yeah. the owner's
1: expense. Well, and when you think about the principal agent problem, in this particular case, it's extremely thorny because the principal are the shareholders and that's a collective uh, group that often have, you know, differing in, um, incentives and goals. Mm-hmm. And the agent is a board of directors where they're often, you know, they're not that engaged in the business, like uh, the information that that they get about the business is fed to them by management, you know, so it's a principle and agent problem, and there's also some inherent issues with the principle and the nature of the agent so a lot of the letters that you published in the book have never been
0: published before How, mm-hmm. did, how did you manage to track these things down?
1: Yeah, I mean you know the the kind of hook of the book is I mean, it's all case studies, mm-hmm. and each of the cases uh, comes with an original letter, and so for lots of them. I knew the letter existed, like in the in the Benjamin Graham chapter. That's the first chapter in the book. He ran a proxy fight against the Northern Pipeline Company, and he had written, you know, there's a whole chapter about that proxy fight in his memoir. And so I knew the letter was out there. Um, it's just a question of of trying to find it. And like I talked to his family and his biographers, and um, and no one had it. And ultimately, I found it at the Rockefeller Archives. But lots of them, I just asked. I mean, like you know, with Warren Buffett, like I knew from the the Snowball that he wrote a the book letter. The
0: Snowball about Buffett. Yeah,
1: he famously wrote a letter to American Express in the 1960s. And so I just wrote Buffett, just to explain the concept of the book, and can you share the letter? And I got to to work one day, and there's a uh, there's an envelope with the letter in it. And, no kidding. And, How uh, long did it take to, for that
0: to get back to you from from the request?
1: Well, weeks. You know, two weeks.
0: There are lots of interesting stories about people making requests about to Buffett and things magically show up. Yeah, it's, it's uh, it's fascinating. So, so what motivated you to write this book? What was your drive to to put this together?
1: Mm-hmm. Well, I mean, I love writing, and I've always, you know, thought that uh, that I had like the writing uh, chops to do a book. Uh, but really, with this one, you know, I'm a full-time fund manager. Like, I didn't have the time. I I had two little kids. You know, when I got the letter from Warren Buffett, like it kind of, you know, turned this idea that I had vaguely had, I'll it write to Buffett, like one I'll see if thing. you'll do something. And then all of a sudden, like I had this uh, pressure of like, well, I had this thing. Like it kind of <laughs> burned a hole in my pocket. Like I got the Buffett letter and the Ross Perot letter, like uh, within weeks of each other. And- you know, Hard the, to say no to both of those yeah, the, guys. I mean, the is one is a, is a fabulous you know, letter. It had not been published, and I just thought, well, I have to do this now.
0: Let's talk a little bit about no relation Ben Graham, mm-hmm. spelled with two A's and, and one M. People think about Ben Graham, and they obviously think about the intelligent investor and mm-hmm. value investing and the whole school of thought that, that comes out of, of that. Uh, but he also turned out to be a bit of an activist investor. Tell us about
1: that. Well, I mean, a lot of the stocks that he bought were exceptionally uh, cheap on a balance sheet basis, and he writes about that. You know that he likes these, you know, net nets where, like, the cash and and you know the current assets exceed all the liabilities.
0: Classic value investing: buy ten dollars for eight bucks, and do well over the long run.
1: Yeah, and I mean, ultimately, when you find those uh, situations, like, you know, the market, like, it's not always dumb. Like a lot of times. It has that valuation because of a governance problem, mm-hmm. and very early in in his career, he found uh, the Northern Pipeline Company, that's in my book, where, like, it was uh, trading in the mid '60s, and he discovered that you know they had over $90 per share in liquid bonds.
0: In other words, they held securities that were worth more. On a per share basis,
1: yeah. Then the whole company Sa- yeah. sounds
0: a little bit like uh,
1: Yahoo today. <laughs> yeah, exactly. And um, you know, like with like with Yahoo, there's a discount because of the tax problem. But there mm-hmm. was also in that stock and lots of other stocks, there was a governance discount. And like with Northern Pipeline, he thought, well, this is easy. I'll go explain to this company, <laughs> hey, like, you hey, you guys, have- you have all this cash, just like return it uh, to the, uh, the shareholders, like. You know, we'll all retain our ownership in your good company, and we'll go from there. And they, you know, they showed him the door.
0: And, and let's let's you say they the some of the folks who are on the other side of the table. Included some pretty big names in the history of finance.
1: Yeah, well, the company was a part of, you know, like the uh, the Standard Oil Company, which was know, owned by by the, you know the Rockefellers, little,
0: small little group that uh, had amassed yeah. a couple of a couple of dollars and a couple of shares of stock.
1: Yeah. So when they broke apart, like the monopoly, mm-hmm. you know, like uh, they had a whole bunch of public companies. There were uh, there were eight pipeline companies, and you know, by the 1920s, when Ben Graham began to poke around, all of these things. Like were very overcapitalized, had these boards that like were not that engaged. And then their biggest holder is the Rockefeller Foundation, who at the time had a policy like to not get involved in the operations of their shareholdings. But, but meanwhile, you have this pipeline, Northern Pipeline, mm-hmm. trading
0: at 65. So, so why couldn't Graham just quietly continue to accumulate as much of the 90 plus dollar per share company? Plus the operating company at 65, and, and not say anything and, and assume eventually the market would figure it out.
1: Yeah. I mean, I think that ultimately he thought that he, like he possibly could do that. But, you know, like the answer there was for them to return that cash, you know? So, so you know, so he quietly bought all that he could until he reached his position limit. Mm-hmm. And then would, nothing happened. What was his
0: position limit? Well, well he was a very diversified investor, right? He, so he's not going to have a concentrated portfolio. No, that's no. You would you would think it, you could today you could raise a fund and just accumulate Northern Pipeline at sixty five dollars with ninety dollars in, in yeah. But exactly, but like it, you know, it never was his M O. to like to buy to get control. So is yeah. that why even when when things worked out with Northern Pipeline, it really didn't impact? His uh, fund all that much?
1: Well, I mean, it did in the sense it was a big home run. It, mm-hmm. it helped his returns. It taught him about activism and governance, and 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 he did like a lot of activism after that. Like, but ultimately, it was not like the investors that you see today that will have a third of their of their fund in one stock and then it's a big home run. So,
0: so what was the outcome uh, with the Rockefellers and Northern Pipeline? How did they resolve this? We are an operating company. Plus, we have ninety dollars per share in
1: marketable securities. Yeah. Well, I mean, it was a long saga. So at first, like they basically uh, told him to go away. He takes the train all the way out, like uh, you know, to Pittsburgh for the annual meeting, and like he tells them that he's like prepared us like a statement, and they tell him, "Well, you're welcome to come." And and he gets up to give the statement, and the chairman asks, um, "You know, would you like to make a motion?" And he says, "Oh so, yes, I would like." Like to motion to give my statement, and the chairman <laughs> asked, "Well, is anyone here uh, to second that motion?" And he didn't bring anyone, and so no one seconded the motion. He had to go all the way back to you, wow. know, to you know to New York, but but by doing that, they really made him angry. And so by the next year, he was extremely prepared. He ran a whole proxy fight. He won the proxy fight. He behind the scenes uh, through a very good letter that's in my book. He you know ultimately uh, convinced the Rockefellers, that the right thing to do here was to distribute this cash. And so not only did that happen at the Northern Pipeline Company, but after this episode, the Rockefellers uh, pushed all of the other pipelines to return their excess cash.
0: So he really had a significant impact on on shareholder value
1: and- Activism. I mean, I'm not sure because I do think that all of this was very under the radar. Mm-hmm. Like, I mean, it was not. I mean, it wasn't uh, on Twitter. Yeah, I mean, it wasn't even in <laughs> like in the newspaper. Like, uh, um, it's the funny. Median, there was no financial press that covered this at all. Yeah. So when I did my book, I looked at all of the old proxy fights, and you know there were a few like you know like the Central Leather like 1911 that like had a very small article. I love. But this by the way, that's none. a
0: fascinating story. Also, tell us about. The central leather
1: story. Oh, well, just that, like their whole proxy fight there, and this got well, big news was just for them to disclose information better. Qu- quarterly release your finances. Yes. Yeah, yeah.
0: how, how amazing is that? That if you went back that far, you go back a century, companies didn't feel obligated to say, by the way, here, here's how much revenue we have, and here's how much profit we have, and here's what we spent money on. Companies did not even release that.
1: No. And in the Ben Graham case, it's not clear that the, that the Rockefellers even knew how cash-rich the pipeline companies were. And so- That's amazing. No, like it opened their eyes to that.
0: So Warren Buffett, famously one of Ben Graham's protégés, he had a big impact when he was an activist in the way companies deal with activists and even how they're structured legally. What happened with, with Buffett?
1: Well, you know, so Buffett in his early career, I mean, well, first of all, you know, um, he worked for Ben Graham, mm-hmm. you know, so he worked at the Graham Newman shop that did lots of proxy fights and did lots of activism. And when he began his own fund in in the mid 1950s in Omaha, he also did lots like of buying big stakes in public companies, you know, joining like the boards and ultimately breaking apart the companies or driving them to, you know, improve profits. And so he did buy lots of these like declining mature undervalued businesses. If you look at Berkshire Hathaway, that's effectively what happened there. Right. Like it was a terrible like declining business, but it was a net net. He bought control of it and he ultimately like began to use their cash and their declining cash flow to invest in other businesses.
0: I'm Barry Ritholtz. You're listening to Masters in Business on Bloomberg Radio. My guest today is Jeff Graham. He is the author of the book Dear Chairman, which is all about activist investing and how things have changed in the world of corporate governance. He also is an adjunct professor at Columbia University. Uh, So you run a fund. I do. And you you know what it's like to have investors who are looking over your shoulder. How do you deal with that in a concentrated portfolio?
1: Yeah, I mean- how do I deal with the investors, like you know, in my fund, or like sure. in our target companies? Both. Let's 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 take both. First, first, do you have your own investors writing yeah. you? Yeah.
0: To your Chairman. Yeah.
1: I, I mean, ultimately, I think it probably has a lot in common with being a public company CEO, in that like you have to communicate your strategy, mm-hmm. explain to them exactly what you're doing explain to them how you think about things and so when things will do go wrong if you have a bad quarter or a bad year you know they can understand it and I think that like that like is ultimately an important job of a public company CEO too is like you have to like to keep your shareholders informed about you know on how you operate you can't guarantee
0: good results but you can at least say Here's our process. Here's what we're doing and we want you to understand this. Yeah. And
1: look, I mean in value investing, like you're never going to have a great year every year.
0: That's right. Cuz cuz by definition you're buying those stubs, those unloved things and just because something's cheap doesn't mean it can't get cheaper. <laughs> it will get cheaper. <laughs> so you wrote yourself a dear
1: chairman letter. Tell us about that. Yeah, my first one it was um in the early 2000s at my very first job, you know, which was like the early years of the hedge fund business and so it was like a little bit of a crazier you know more like the the wild west you know so like, so, so the the evolution of that is that today po-
0: post 2000 there's 10,000 hedge funds but for a long time there was only a handful of
1: funds there were some pretty well known
0: guys yeah. And that exploded around post
1: dot com period. I think it's also it's just a more mature and process oriented business. I think that uh, when I began in it, I was just out of business school. I didn't know what I was doing, and I got and I mean I wrote a 13D letter well, to a, like a like a pretty big public company, uh, the Denny's Corporation. Uh huh. The moon's over Miami people, and I just think that like that back then it was just like a, you know it was a little bit of a. Of a of a crazier time in the business, but they had had some problems, uh-huh. and they had tried to kind of expand their like their lunch and dinner business, and and had neglected to advertise their breakfast business. It hurt their results. And, and there, I mean, I
0: think of Denny's, and I think of breakfast. These yeah, days. exactly. So how did that? Did you influence that chain?
1: Are you? Are you the reason why we have Denny's breakfast all day? (laughs) I think I played a role in them not doing a restructuring in in the early 2000s. So we basically, it was a cheap stock because it was highly over leveraged. Mm -hmm. And like you, I mean, like you rarely see this as often, but it was a, a situation where on an enterprise basis, the company was extremely undervalued, you know, where if you could delever it, Sure. like then you can realize you all value that debt. yeah Absolutely. like you know that stuff tends to be a lot more priced in these days i would imagine you know? so
0: so when you come across a situation these days where there is an undervalued company the market is mispricing it and you want management to do something how do you go about writing that dear chairman letter yeah
1: i i mean in, in 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 a funny way even though i wrote a book about it um the age of of the dear chairman letter is kind of passing, like you go mm-hmm. meet with the management and you, and, and you meet with the board and you have a conversation with them and you meet with the other shareholders. You know, back then, like you're more tr- uh, trying to persuade the shareholder base. And so at that time, like the Denny's board was considering doing a restructuring to equitize their debt. And, you know, so we had to- Highly like, dilutive. Yeah. You know, so we had to convince the board, no, like you're doing fine. If you need to raise a capital, like you should do it well, from the stockholders. And by doing that in a, in a, like in a public fashion, like it also got the stockholders behind the idea. Mm-hmm. That makes a lot of sense.
0: So let's talk about uh, some of
1: the quotes from the
0: book, and I really like this. In normal market conditions, if I find a good company at
1: cheap valuation, it tends to have governance problems. Is that still true today? I think that's true. And I mean, that was a, um, a statement that I made in the introduction of the book where like I'm kind of explaining who I am and explaining the voice of the book. And you know I'm a value investor. I look for cheap stocks. And especially in a market like today's, it's hard to find a cheap stock, and if you do find one, it's often because there's an issue with how they're run. It's cheap for a reason. Yeah, <laughs> that, that makes
0: sense. And what's the difference in management at a large company versus a small company when it comes to these governance issues?
1: I mean, I guess like from you know from my experience, I generally believe that like the larger companies tend to have higher quality boards, mm-hmm. and they tend to be just like to have higher caliber. CEOs and boards of directors and you know that is both intuitive and counterintuitive because in, like in some ways like you would think well at these you know well niche small companies like you might have these well CEOs like who really know the business you know but generally the bigger the company the the stronger the board i think
2: all
0: right let's get back to the activist investor question and and i like the example we we talked earlier about central leather J.S. Beish. eventually, is that Prudential Bache? Is that where they ended up? I don't know. I I think that's, if memory serves, I think they eventually Mm -hmm. became part of that. They wanted uh, representation on the board merely to get quarterly financial updates to shareholders. That almost seems quaint compared to what what takes place today. So what was the result of that bit of shareholder activism?
1: Well, I mean, in the very early days, um, activism... I mean, if it was, you know, well, from a, f- a financial investors, well, guys like Ben Graham, well, first of all, there was not that much of that, mm-hmm. and and second of all, it tended to always be about, uh, you know, financial issues, well, uh, financial disclosure or capital allocation, and really, like you saw a beginning in in the 1950s with the. The proxy tier movement that was a very big uh, shareholder activism movement. In other words, getting
0: actual other shareholders to vote the way the activists wanted yeah. in
1: order to force management
0: to do what they wanted to do. Yeah.
1: I mean, in the proxy tier era, it evolved, you know, to a lot more um, operating issues and the kind of activism that you see today. I mean, I remember there was in. Like in the chapter in the book, that's about the proxy fight for the New York Central. Uh, the activist even talks about like the nature of their passenger trains and like, like like that they needed to build a like a lightweight train. You know, so things evolved, uh, you know, well pretty quickly. i I'm, I'm away from the pure uh, financial activism. So,
0: so you raise a really interesting point there, and I'm going to go to a quote from your book. The key issue in an activist campaign often boils down to who will do a better job running the company, a professional management team and their board with little accountability, or a financial investor looking out for his or her own, and I'm going to add the word short-term, interests. <laughs> so that, to me, that's really a fascinating uh, issue, a fascinating set of opposed interests.
1: Yeah. And I think in the ideal world, like you want the activist uh, shareholders like- well, to be well, long-term oriented and like you do want them all to work together doesn't know? always happen that way no and lots of times like if you're a passive shareholder and there's an activist like the activist you know wants to sell the company right and so like you're deciding like who's right here and, i like, was i will perfect
0: example was the carl icon activism with apple here's yeah. a company on its way to becoming the most valuable company in the world they dented the universe to quote steve jobs and Invented not one or two, but a number of technologies that were completely innovative, game changing, altering the landscape. Really, what does a guy who bought a few million shares of Apple have to say about innovation, technology, running a company? I was always very struck at the hubris of. I know how you should be running this company better than you do. Yeah. Uh, Does that come up frequently with, with activists or?
1: Yeah. I mean, I think that's like the whole issue is like that ultimately it, it, like it takes a lot of of hubris, like, you know, because um, as investors, we are working off of extremely limited information. You Mm -hmm. know, we know less than the board and the management uh, knows about the business often. And so like they do have to have this a confidence that like their ideas are right, even when they do tend to have less information. But it's not always black and white. Like I mean, even in that Carl Icahn case, mm-hmm. like on the one hand, like you have the most successful company in history, arguably. Like right, I mean, I mean like they're in that's a fair statement. It's, I mean, they're in a very hard commodity business, and they've built you know what will right now is like the most viable uh, company in the world. That's an insane achievement, Not not only
0: that, when you look at the mobile smartphone, something that if they didn't invent, they certainly took to a different level, they capture something like four out of five cents. It used to be eight out of nine cents of profit in that space. My favorite stat about Apple is Samsung makes more selling chips to Apple for each phone that (laughs) Apple sells than they do on their own Galaxy phones. That's amazing. So... For someone to come along and say, "All right, nice job, guys, so far, but I'll take it from here," that's really a lot of. Yeah. Of, uh,
1: but I mean, is he clearly wrong? I mean, if you believe in the business, will long term, if you believe in the management, like, is he wrong to say, "Look, you're crazily, I mean, you know, you're crazily overcapitalized. Perhaps uniquely, like you to buy back some shares. Right. It's and unique so, in the history for some company to be sitting." with 200 billion or at the time yeah. at the time it was 100 billion, now it's 200 billion. Yeah and so you know their incentives. like you know that, like, uh, that Icon wants the stock to go up, and you know the management probably wants that 200 billion uh, to play with or like to do whatever right. they, you know they want with. like you as the shareholder, it's not just completely obvious who's right and who's wrong there, and it depends on your like on your long-term view of the company and like your view of the valuation. We're talking with Jeff Graham, author
0: of Dear Chairman, The History of Activist Investing. So so let's look at the current crop of activists. You mentioned Carl Icahn, uh, Warren Buffett, Benjamin Graham, Ross Perot, Dan Loeb. With the notable exception of Warren Buffett, the investors in this book are static characters who
1: undergo little fundamental change.
0: Why is that?
1: Well, the book is about- this activist movement. It's about how we got there. It's about how it happened. Um, and ultimately, an activist is a financial investor, We'll, you know, we'll trying to make a profit on their investment in the company. And, you know, like the way that, that those guys all do it um, has changed over time by, because of a lot of external factors. But ultimately, at their core, they are still these economic actors out to make a buck. And mm-hmm. I think it's important as we look at this history, and as like we understand how public companies work, um, you know, well, people uh, tend to focus a lot on the personalities of the activists and will Bill Ackman and David Einhorn, but but a lot of the movement that you're seeing now is uh, driven by the behind the scenes uh, passive investors, the people like uh, Vanguard or the big pension funds. So let's let's talk about
0: Vanguard because sure. you said something publicly. So, for those people who don't know, I think in terms of the United States, Vanguard owns one out of every five shares of every publicly traded company, which is an insane number. And I heard you on, uh, I saw a video online where you noted that Vanguard has 22 people on staff whose sole job it is to vote the proxies for the companies they own. So, we all think of Vanguard as this passive company. But really, if they wanted to flex their muscles, they're a very powerful player in corporate governance. Yeah,
1: so I mean, like the big dynamic that you see in this book is that like the history of activism has been uh, been uh, been sculpted by like 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 this concentration in institutional investors, like that really began in the '60s with Mm -hmm. the big pension funds, but then it kind of got kicked into hyperdrive with with uh, the index funds and um indexation which is uh, you know Vanguard is a pretty old company but this is a pretty recent phenomenon i mean even well since the like the the financial crisis like you've seen a dramatic increase mm-hmm. in you know uh, it, like in these big like uh, uh, passive you know institutions Black and, Rock, and, yeah, state like state street the quants, it's not exactly. just vanguard it's a, yeah. a whole
0: run of stuff that has been at what is it, uh, BlackRock and Vanguard are each they're like a huge four percentage trillion of dollars yeah some crazy. you you add State Street and one or two more
1: and that's half the tradable shares out yeah. there yeah and those um, entities like have basically uh, fallen into the situation like where they are effectively the arbiters of these hedge fund um, um activist disputes and so like yeah like you'll see Bill Ackman in the headlines on you know Canadian Pacific or something but like the people that hold the votes are these big pension funds and, and, and Vanguard behind the scenes and their vote is incredibly important. And so they like are very, um, you know, I mean, you know, they're more engaged than like, than people uh, think in these issues, um, especially at the bigger cap companies.
0: Thank you, Jeff, for chatting with us. Can you stick around yes, for the podcast extras? Great. We've been speaking with Jeff Graham. He is the author of Dear Chairman, The History of Activist Investors. Be sure and check out my daily column on BloombergView.com or follow me on Twitter at Ritholtz. I'm Barry Ritholtz. You've been listening to Masters in Business on Bloomberg Radio. Welcome to the podcast extra. Jeff, thank you so much for doing this. This is uh, this is really interesting. Before we continue the questions. There's a funny little story I think we should share.
1: <laughs> sure.
0: So so a couple of guys in my office had read Dear Chairman. I keep calling it, by the way, Dear Mr. Chairman. You, lots of people do. Or I don't Dear know Dear Shareholder.
1: Why. And,
2: right. The, to me, it's, it's like a like,
0: like pretty snappy title. Right, but, Dear but Chairman. for some reason, Dear Mr. Yeah. Chairman. Well, because some of the letters are Dear Mr. Chairman. So uh, Ben Carlson is our head of institutional investing, and, and he runs uh, that division. And he had done a blog post on this. And then Michael Batnick is my head of research, and he had read the book. Both of them liked it. So I kind, you know, I have a billion books in my queue, and I read whatever is on fire, and I and I have to read. So this was sort of like I knew of it, and it was like, oh, that sounds kind of interesting. Maybe I'll get to that. I get an email from none other than Arthur Levitt, former SEC chairman, and and a previous guest on the show, not once but twice, and he says, I have a young man I'd like you to meet. Um, he wrote this book, uh, dear Mr. Chairman. And I'm like, why does that sound familiar? Oh, of course the book. And so I go back and, you know, I, I respond to, um, and, and he mentions he goes, by the way, he's the son of Phil Graham. And I said, I'm interested in the book. I'd love to speak with Jeff, but truth be told, you know, I wrote bailout nation. I was pretty critical of a number of people, Robert Rubin, Bill Clinton, George Bush, but I was pretty hard on on your dad. Mm-hmm. And I wrote to Arthur. I said, I'm happy to talk and to you. And my him. mom. I, that's right. I go, full <laughs> disclosure. I trashed I, his father, pushed the Commodity Future Monetization Act. Or, his name is on Graham Bleach, uh, Leach Bliley, which repealed Glass Steagall. And so I said, you know, full disclosure, I, I've you know been hard on his dad. I called his mom all sorts of things about Enron and blah, blah, blah. You know, how do you suggest we handle this? Oh, don't worry about it, Arthur says. (laughs) I'll make the introduction. All right. So I'm like, oh, all right. Arthur is who's Arthur might be one of the most charming people, and he's great. uh, One of the finest human beings you'll you'll ever meet. And so he takes that whole email where I where I lay out the you know I've trashed his mom and his dad. Are you sure this is comfortable? (laughs) and he just replies to me and copies you <laughs> yeah. and i see that and i'm like oh no arthur that is an email faux pas yeah. and i scroll down and here's and there's nothing bad in the email it was just hey you know full disclosure i don't want to <laughs> you know i don't want this this person to walk into a room and suddenly feel like he's being sandbagged you should probably let him know in a subtle way not just here have a look at this. Uh, so you were you were very gracious and said, "Don't worry about it. I've heard yes. worse."
1: Well, it's a funny situation because I think in like today's world, like you realize, like if someone emails you like a chain email you probably are going to skim that chain of course so arthur is not like i skim down right i'm like huh like do i pretend i didn't see this well no i just like replied all like hey well none taken (laughs) (laughs)
0: when when i saw the email it's all right there's an elephant in the room and we'll have to address it (laughs) and fortunately you responded to that it it was actually very funny arthur if you're listening reply all not the not the (laughs) right thing to uh not the right thing to do, but it was, um, you know, in the day, days of Google, whatever you wrote is out there. Yeah. I always Google my guests. I don't know if anybody's going to Google me, but if they did, hey, he's written stuff about Senator Graham and your well, dad was in the public sphere. Yeah, I mean, I have sphere. a
1: lifetime of, I think of you, enduring that, you know, I mean, he ran for, for president when I was in college. Right. So. How was that? Yeah, it was a little bit surreal. I don't really remember. You didn't have it a that secret well. service or anything no, like that. No, no, no. I mean, he got knocked out after um, um, Iowa, right? So, um, but
0: yeah, once, once they become the nominee, the kids are suddenly's lives are turned upside down.
1: I don't know. I mean, even. If you lose, like, do people really know much about well Bob Dole's kids or well Mitt Romney's kids? I'm not sure they really do. Uh, if you're in college and there's a Secret
0: Service contingency yeah. there,
1: I gotta think that messes your life up a little or or it certainly is
0: impactful. It doesn't it's not gonna mess up your life. But suddenly you're going to class and there are four guys with yeah. dark glasses <laughs> and and little earbuds in, that's gotta be a little surreal.
1: Yeah. Well, it's been funny. I mean, at that time, like you're you know when you're in college or or a kid a like you know like you're you've grown up with it it's always yeah. been it's not yeah like it is like like the way it is like you're pretty adjustable as it is mm-hmm. and you're kind of completely self-absorbed anyway so like you don't will have the perspective to understand that like that that things are weird and <laughs> and you know when i wrote this book i thought like well surely people are going to talk about that my mom was on the board of enron right and, um, did that ever come up in any of the reviews? Or it has anything? not come up at all. That's you know? amazing. I mean, in fact, you know, the connection with my dad has only been mentioned twice, and that is here, like right. today.
0: Well, I, ha- and- I, felt, I felt obligated that if I didn't disclose that up front, because sure. <laughs> I never want someone to come in and say, this isn't supposed to be gotcha. You know, this is supposed mm-hmm. to be, hey, who are you? What have you done? And how did that come about? That, that's the thinking here. So that's why I said to Arthur, Hey, you know, is he okay with the fact that? Mm-hmm. Um, and uh, <laughs> I guess Arthur's thought was, well, let's find out. Let's send the email. So, so Enron has never come up in any of the of the, the book, book coverage. Group. No. Co- and- to be fair, what your parents did in their professional career should not color how someone interprets your work. Your work, yeah. the book, at the very least, stands on its own, and it's gotten really good reviews. So. Uh, to I, I could see both sides. Well, you know, there's a shareholder... Act- were there shareholder activists with Enron? I don't ever recall that. Um, it was such a hot stock. It did so well for so long. Was there even a window
1: for activists to jump in on that? Well, so there were some... Some uh, some loud short sellers, right? Well, so Jim Chanos, right? Not um, another a previous guest, you know. but not exactly. And an the activist. journalists were were engaged, you know. Well, Bethany McLean, right? And also and then, a guest on the, a previous guest on the show, and uh, uh she's great. And she's, then, I love her work. She's fabulous. And then you had uh, like there was an email, like you know, like an internal, you know, what well, kind of a dear chairman email? Like you know, which from I, who? Who who did an in- internal? Um, I forget her name. Dear I, Ken you know like i want to say tiffany uh something uh, tiffany watkins or something but it was that like a, like familiar. it was the, a person who was like the who worked in the cfo accounting. or yeah, something, yeah, something that like that right and like i actually looked at that for for inclusion in the book i mean i looked at a lot of these you know uh, uh, um um originally the book was just going to be a a collection of letters and not necessarily all shareholder activism and and not all a financial activism. So, like, a, like I looked at like some PETA letters and mm-hmm. and um, the gadflies, and I looked at at the Enron one, and ultimately, the theme in this works so well. It, 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 yeah, I mean, like the book, like as I narrowed it down, it must like, have made just a lot come of sense, together. Like, to and, oh, way. of course, this is a coherent package as
0: opposed to a disparate smattering of letters all yeah, over the place. Exactly. That that's the challenge when you're dealing with a lot of different sources how can i make this thematically consistent as opposed to just you know i uh, i i write about putting together daily lists mm-hmm. uh, i call i i describe it as curate viciously
1: mm-hmm. and you
0: have to do that cuz there's so many really interesting things that digress you away yeah. from like this conversation um so you ended up deciding eh, it just wasn't worth it to put that in there it was just nothing didn't as really compelling
1: work like I mean, look, I give her credit, like, you know, like uh, for uh, for speaking up, but it's kind of a, a cuckoo, you know, crazy email. Like it, uh, I mean, it wasn't like you know, a Loeb letter. Yeah. I mean, so it,
0: speaking of crazy, yeah, <laughs> I, we
1: didn't get to the Loeb
0: conversations. <laughs> mm-hmm. His letters are poison pen letters. Yeah, yeah. They are just dripping with disdain. How effective are these?
1: Well, I think that was a little bit of a product of the time. So, mm-hmm. like, you have to. To put yourself in the late nineteen nineties and the and and the early aughts, like the like the hedge fund business is it's it's a new industry. It has not been around that long. It doesn't have a lot of credibility. Um, you've just had what what years are we talking about? Early two thousands. Okay and. and like like you know and see i 90s. look at
0: i look at the hedge fund industry as having been around Al- alfred uh winslow and yeah and since some, the late 60s yeah so it's been but they were teeny tiny they were you know i, I the joke is there were 100 hedge funds for the for the 30 40 years mm-hmm. before 2000 um and now there's 11,000 but it's those
1: same 100 hedge funds that are creating alpha <laughs> so. well i think about like the beginning of the kind of um activist uh, uh, shareholders as more beginning in the 90s mm-hmm. and um and you know what you had there was you know like you had a period in the 80s where like these activists had lots of power like the corporate raiders they like i mean you know they ultimately had cash because of michael milken mm-hmm. and and by the 90s and the 2000s like the activists you know, they like they no longer have Michael Milken. So there's no more the the sort of just the dry powder, powder like, available bias. To them. Yeah. yeah. And so for them to to get the attention of the board, you know, that like they tried a whole bunch of different tactics. But, you know, well, uh, the one that Loeb used was, you know, what I call the shame driven activist. Uh-huh. you know where like he needs to get the attention of the other shareholders of the board of directors and of the uh, and of the management team and he did it through you know uh, town hangings and and public shamings and is that an effective technique does it work i think it worked uh then because mm-hmm. it got people's attention it gave him a reputation that sure. you know, well, directors would be like afraid of. But <laughs> like, but ultimately, like, it also compels the management to circle their wagons. And well, nowadays it's not necessary because um, activism, uh, you know, from uh, from hedge funds is credible. And so, what you will really need to do is uh, convince the vanguards and the cowpers of the world that, like, that your ideas are right. And doing that, a uh, well. Is not about you know we're calling out the CEO's mom you know so which
0: which Loeb did in one uh, yeah. notable letter basically saying something along the lines of um you know uh, I I think the final line was uh, I doubt if you ignore this letter that your mom is going to fire fire you <laughs> or words to that effect which are pretty scathing so uh, you know and uh, I'm pulling one of these statements uh, the Star Gas Partners. Mm-hmm. This is just great. Sadly, your ineptitude is not limited to your failure to communicate with bond and unit holders. A review of your record reveals years of value destruction and strategic blunders, which have led us to dub you one of the most dangerous and incompetent executives in America. That's not enough. He has to keep going. <laughs> and he says, I was amused to learn in the course of our investigation That at Cornell University, there is an RX-7 scholarship. That's who the letter was to, RX-7, president and CEO of Star Gas Partners. One can only pity the poor student who suffers the indignity of attaching your name to his academic record. So how, how typical or atypical is that sort of viciousness for Loeb? And for other investors are his poison pen letters unique to him or have other people adapted that
1: Well at that time there were lots of them and he was not even the first one like the first guy like that really did that was like this crazy guy named Bob Chapman And um I mean at that time it worked like because you know well no one else was paying attention to these hedge funds like had to you know, be shocking know, to get a letter yeah. like yeah you know I mean you know they didn't um have the capital to just like to buy enough shares to to uh you know to replace You get the to five
0: percent you're immediately uh you're filing and you're doing all these
1: things that that's usually with a big company that's a chunk of money yeah but Dan Loeb you know well nowadays um uh, first of all I mean um uh, he doesn't even do that much activism mm-hmm and when he does it like he'll still do a public letter but but like he knows that like that like that he needs to build consensus uh, like among the big institutions like mm-hmm. it's just will not the way that things in in the 1990s were and um you, you know you know that was more a product of those times makes makes a lot of sense so let's go through some questions
0: we missed mm-hmm. um and there were two in particular that had that I wanted to make sure we got to. Uh, the first, well, let's start with the second. First, um, activist investors now have much more power than they used to, and the ability to affect change in ways that they couldn't do in the past, or that were more difficult in the past. Mm-hmm. So, discuss that. How how has the role of and the authority and power of activists changed over the past few decades? Sure.
1: Well, you had a a period you know from the 60s until the 80s where you know a share ownership in the country um, had reconcentrated you know but into the hands of these big institutions and the big, uh, the big institutions were not that engaged you know they were not um, you know that involved at we're the, talking foundations endowments pensions yeah. big institutional investors the big mutual funds the big mm-hmm. pension funds and there's a real turning point in the 1980s because like you have the corporate raiders
0: so milken funding a lot of these yeah, people
1: yeah like you have greenmail mm-hmm. which will really was well pretty blatant in its you know will mistreatment of public shareholders like if you're you know a company and like a, you know and you buy out like a loud and troublesome shareholder for a big premium over everyone else just to make them go away. You're clearly disservicing your shareholders. Sure. And then you had Ross Perot happen. And with Ross Perot, um, you know, GM like is undergoing, you know, a few decades of decline. It's very public. You know, um, everyone knows that they're beginning to fall behind the, the, uh, the Japanese. And, you know, their shareholder base are these big institutions that have been in GM uh, forever. And they see GM pay Ross Perot three quarters of a billion dollars. That's a lot of money even you know, for GM. Yeah, to resign from the board of directors. And so they're paying this guy <laughs> who they view as the most engaged and best director uh, you know, to leave.
0: Go away, kid, you bother me. Yeah. That was it.
1: And it kind of showed them, well, we have created a monster. Mm-hmm. And from that point on the The big institutions began to get engaged, and they they began to like to pay attention. They began like to vote their like their proxies with a lot more thought, and that has you know like in a funny way, it's empowered these activists because if you do have ideas like you know uh, that resonate with investors, or like if you want to push for a CEO to be fired, and the people like like at Cowpers, well, maybe they're not as comfortable you know, we'll publicly, um, I'm asking for someone to be fired, but well, maybe they think that they need to go, you know, uh, they support a lot of these activist campaigns. And so like, you know, this empowerment of the, of, of, of the activist, a lot of that is about the resolve of the big passive institutions.
0: That that's interesting. So, so let's talk about different sectors of companies. One of the <laughs> things I asked you uh, about earlier, um, off, off mic. I want to bring up on mic. So you have tech companies, and then you have like a big consumer products company, like Colgate Palmolive. Mm-hmm. Are there differences in how activists approach those two companies, and conversely, how do those two sectors—a tech company and a consumer goods sector—how do their CEOs and boards respond to activists differently?
1: Yeah, I, I, I mean, I think that like that ultimately, a fundamentally. Like, they're all very similar. Like, mm-hmm. they're companies, and they often um, have governance issues, and, like, you have to decide who is, like, the right person to lead this company. And, you know, like, you'll see people say, like, oh, well, this is a complicated, um, high-technology company, and so, like, you really need to be uh, uh, sophisticated so so um, activists um, have no place there. And that's just clearly not right. I mean, if it's a like a highly, you know, complicated company, then like like it matters who the CEO is and like it matters that like you don't, uh, will tolerate, uh, you know, bad governance for long periods of time. And then like you'll see people say, oh, well Colgate or, well, you know, Coca-Cola, they're these like mature businesses that can run themselves. Like who cares about the board? Like, like a monkey could run the company. And that's also clearly not true because with a mature business, like you have to allocate the capital, mm-hmm. like you have to decide what to do with your excess cash—if you will pay a dividend or buy back shares or pursue um, um, opportunities in M&A—and so all of those—and that's before we start looking at a competitive threat from yeah, new companies, totally. from existing companies. Look. And I think that, like, the history has shown that as secure as you think you are, if, you know, when you look at GM in the 1950s and you say this is a durable competitive advantage, they have a cost advantage, they have, a, like, a dealer network, they have the best brands. And, in, and and you know, in two decades, they lose out to the Japanese who, like, have no capital, huh. have well, terrible brand, you know, like a, um, a, a, a reputation. Sure. And, um, like... Like they have no dealer networks, and you know. So, I mean, even a mature, great business, as we've seen, like in Coca-Cola, can can. I think this year is hard
0: times. I think this is the first year where bottled water is going to outsell soda, and so if you're not, there's always competitive threats. Andy Grove said, "Only the paranoid survive," and and he's right. If if you don't think your business is going to be attacked in the competition in the marketplace, you're you're kidding yourself. Now. So let me turn the turn the dial a little bit and, and shift the focus. So you go through all these activists, you go through all these businesses, uh, you look at how all this stuff has changed. How has this impacted your thinking about how you invest your capital? I don't mean you as a manager getting a dear chairman letter. I mean, what has been the impact of this on your thought process in terms of putting risk capital out there yeah i
1: mean it gave me historical perspective like a, like a lot of the of the history i didn't know but you know i think investors learn best from losing money mm-hmm. and i kind of had lost enough you know well money through you know through bad governance like to learn the lessons of the book like i think you know a lots of the value of the book is explaining how the system works and 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 how he got to now and you know we're trying to to do it in an entertaining way, and mm-hmm. I think a lot of the of the things that I fundamentally learned were like about just like the power of these like behind the scenes uh, uh passive investors but in terms of in, of of affecting you know my personal um, investments you know in value investing you do have to take into account the the uh, the governance but I had already you know learned the hard way about that mm-hmm <laughs> So I'm not sure it's affected it that much. So what
0: attracted you to value investing in the first place, other than Columbia? Um, the which really that's where Ben Graham yeah. taught, right? I mean, is that is it safe to say Columbia Graduate School of Business is is uh, square one when it
1: comes to value investing? You know, uh, they like to say that, and <laughs> it like it was true for me. And mm-hmm. I mean, I like after college. Um, you know, I played music. Like, and I had no business background. I, like, I didn't know accounting. Like, I had never heard of Warren Buffett. And so, when I got to uh, to Columbia, um, like, I didn't know what I was going to do. I, like, I took like a lot of different classes, and um, I took a class with uh, Joel Greenblatt. Sure. And um, the little book that beats yeah. the market. And before that, he wrote a book called uh, "You Can Be a, S- a Stock Market Genius." Yes. That's, that's about you know restructurings and and. And and spinoffs. So I think this like the subtitle is like uncovering the the secret hiding places of you know value. of value. Yeah, and I think that you know yeah that I like had never heard of that stuff. And the whole idea of of buying a fifty cent dollar, it you know, will really resonated like with me. And so I began just to consume everything I could, and that of course will led me to Warren Buffett and and um you know that is how I got into it. I'm going to pull up the exact
0: quote. You can be a stock market genius uncovering the secret hiding places of stock market val- profits. And uh, that came out in 1999. That book has really been around for a while and stu- stood the test of time. Um, so I've plowed through a lot of questions. Let's go into our standard questions that I ask all my guests. Mm-hmm. Uh, so you mentioned you you were playing music. What what did you tell us a little bit about your background? What did you do before finance? So I played in a rock band. Mm-hmm. What would you play? A guitar. Okay. And, and, and so I that sang. makes you our third guitarist guest. Because right. I've had uh, Lawrence Juber and uh, before that John Pizzarelli, and we have another guitarist coming up next month. I'll I'll leave that for a surprise. So that'll your number three. Uh-huh. H- how long did you do that for? uh pretty
1: much through college like mm-hmm. i think like i kind of in college you know we'll, you know we we'll majored in being in a band and then uh, i graduated in uh, 96 and uh, pretty much from then until i went to business school in 2000 and, and, and one, um, i toured and then you know when i was not on tour i temp um, i lived in dc i'm mm-hmm. I mean, I mean, it was interesting to come to new york because People in bands in in New York have you know well, real professions and actually right. you know will have real jobs, but but in every other city like you're a like a bartender or a temp or like uh-huh. work at a restaurant, and um, and so like I basically I toured and temped. That sounds interesting. You know,
0: Jeff Gunlock was a uh, drummer. Oh really? Before he became a Bond uh, guru, and and it's always interesting to see how people find their way. So so. You're you're playing rock and roll music, you're touring. What made you say, listen, I enjoy life on the road, but I really want to get an MBA? How did how did that come about?
1: Well, like we really weren't
0: that successful.
1: Okay. Right? Like we kind of you know, we did well in the sense like that that other bands liked us. What you was know, the name often, of your band? Um it was called Aiden. Spell and that. A D E N. Okay, oh sure. And um uh, you know, we ultimately just weren't that good Uh (laughs) and the other band uh, you know the other band members like were kind of like beginning to think about the future too and 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 i remember i was in in dc and i met with arthur levitt he was a friend of my dad's and like you know um you know i just Like I tried to think about, you know, what would be a versatile degree that would like, you know, allow me to at least discover something that I would be good at. So I'm looking at, for those of you who want to go to Amazon
0: and check this out. How many CDs did you record? We had four. All right. So we had... uh... I'm seeing Hey 19, which sounds like the (laughs) Steely Dan song. Yeah, that's our third record. Black Cow. Yeah. Also a Steely Dan song. That is also a Steely Dan song.
1: Topsiders. Top Siders. That's I think that's our best record. Really, is that
0: topsider? Two thousand and two, or is that the reissue in two thousand and
1: two? I think it came out in 01. Okay, but um, but that one was like that was like the the death of the band. That was where we. <laughs> the, I mean, that was a grim tour. Oh, well, like, why the empty. Steely Dan titles? I don't know. We liked them, and what's you know, not to like about the you know, Dan? The, and they were very untrendy at that time. This was oh like, really? Like, yeah, the, yeah. I mean, you know, this was before like the like the the reemergence of of Yacht Rock. Okay. Cuz you know? so
0: I'm older than you. When mm-hmm. I was in high school or maybe college, uh Gaucho came out and a- Asia was inescapable on the radio. Of you it was so but a lot of their stuff has really stood the test of time. If you like rock and you like jazz, mm-hmm. there's an argument to when when we've had these debates and there's a whole post somewhere on the blog if you look at what is the greatest, who is the greatest rock and, American rock and roll band? Mm-hmm. So by saying American, you're eliminating the Beatles, the Stones, the Who. And by saying band, you're eliminating Bruce Springsteen and other people who who we really think of as solo artists not bands mm-hmm. Steely Dan always makes the top five that's interesting and yeah. you don't really I'll, I'll send you that link I'll 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 post it when when this goes up <laughs> but that's interesting you guys really put out music and we're we're regular yeah. actual
1: touring musicians yeah and being in a touring band is an incredible experience it like it really teaches you to get along with people and mm-hmm. it teaches you a like a lot just well being in in a a small vehicle with well, four people. You're in a van touring the yeah. going club to club. Yeah. We do like, you know, 32 shows in 31 days, like that kind of thing. Right. And you got to hope the thing doesn't break down. And get yeah. Flat. And like, you really like learn about like your own, like, you know, um, 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 um emotional buildup, you know? Sure. Cause if you're too uptight or you're too tense, it can be pretty work. miserable, you yeah. know? So like, I think it made all of us just, like relaxed, like a little bit, and I think that it was like a. I, I mean, like we're all, you know, doing well uh, professionally, and I think it was a valuable experience. Huh. That's quite fascinating. You,
0: you were. I know. I know. Gunlock played um, in a hair band and a hair metal band. Awesome. <laughs> and um, I'm trying to think. There's one other person who was also a musician. It'll pop into pop into my head. So you mentioned Arthur Levitt. Mm-hmm. Um, uh, tell us a little bit about some of your mentors, and and you can <laughs> include. Arthur in that list. Yeah, I
1: mean, I think that Arthur is the main one. I mean, he, I think he really um, helped me get into business school in the first place, and then like he's just been, you know, uh, so supportive of my career, and he's been very supportive of this book, and and you know, I mean, I think um, Arthur is the son of a politician, Mm -hmm. and I think that his father was New York State Controller, if Mm -hmm. memory serves,
0: yeah, and actually one of the longest running controllers in history. And I think Arthur might have been one of the longest running SEC uh, chairmen. I think that he is the longest running one. Yeah. Um, So he knew you could relate to somebody who. Yeah, I think growing up under the shadow of a a famous father—that can't be the easiest thing in the world to deal with. Yeah,
1: and then well, professionally, I mean, like that Joel Greenblatt class was very like important uh, for me. And then at my first job, like I worked at kind of a dysfunctional hedge fund but I had the, the the director of research at that job was this guy named uh, greg schrock mm-hmm. um, he had been um a Wachtell Lipton lawyer in the in, like in the early 80s and um
0: lots of m; experience yeah
1: he just well knew background. so much and like was always you know well really took the time to kind of but, but, but to show me the, like the right things like to read and like to ask the right you know well, you know questions about uh, public companies mm. I think he was a big fan of your blog. Oh, really? Yeah. Oh, that's a small world.
0: Um, Every now and then, someone out of the blue will say that to me, and I don't know how to. Um, (laughs) I won't mention his name, um, but a household name one day says to me, oh, I'm a fan of the blog. I've been reading it for years. And I just responded with an expletive, BS. (laughs) And he's like, no, really. my, My son read it. He turned me on to it years ago. I read it every morning and it's really, it's just such a weird. So when you are somewhat quasi public, it's, it's really startling. You, do you ever have an experience where someone knows you because of your dad and talks to you like they know you as a,
1: not like, in years. I mean, I mean, I think he's, um, he's just, you know, more under the radar now. He retired. And but like, for sure, when we were doing the touring stuff, like you sometimes, like we'd be playing in like, you know, Jackson, Mississippi, or something, and there'd be this, like, contingent of young Republicans there. Would show up Which to would be totally band. baffling. Right. So that occasionally happened, but, but not that much.
0: And um, that's, that's really interesting. So uh, you talk about so many different investors in the book. Uh, ben Graham, Warren Buffett, obviously. What, what other investors influenced um, your investing, your thought process?
1: I mean, I do think for me it really kind of all all um, all boils back to Buffett. Mm-hmm. Like he kind of covers all the bases with his writing. Um, like I certainly I read all the Munger speeches. Like I read all of the Seth so Klarman good. stuff. Uh huh. You know, so like when Klarman has an article or a speech, but um,
0: I actually just put a Klarman video up on the blog over the weekend. Well, you got to get him on the show. Um, he's kind of a recluse. He doesn't do a lot of video. A yeah. lot of lot of media. Even though this is not the typical media, but feel free to make an introduction. He's <laughs> I uh, don't know, him, but he seems nah.
1: very funny. Like I've seen him in these uh, fireside chats, or yeah. or I've seen him, you know, give talks, and and um, he's engaging and funny.
0: All right, so we'll we'll reach out to Seth if you're listening. We'd love to have you. Uh, <laughs> we'd love to have you on the show because you know, 90 minutes in, you know, Seth Klarman is hanging <laughs> on every every word. Let Let's talk about books. Mm-hmm. Um, what books have you enjoyed? Be them. Be they investing or non investing, fiction or non fiction, what books have really influenced you?
1: Okay. Well, I'll begin with the business ones. I mean, um, I do love business books. I've, you know, doing this book, I got to read, you know, so many um, incredible business books. You know, just if you look at GM. Mm-hmm. Like the library of, sure. of 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 incredible books about uh, GM is just incredible. There's like the Alfred Sloan book uh, my years with General Motors, uh-huh. and if you read that, that's pretty old, right? That's uh 50s yeah, or something like I that, think 60s. And then if you read that alongside the John Delorean book about the decline of GM, mm-hmm. you know, uh, from a distance you uh, um, on a clear day you can see General Motors. Like if you read those two books and the The chapter in Peter uh, Drucker's *Adventures of a Bystander* about a Mm -hmm. Sloan—that's incredible reading. Um, You know, like I like uh, journalistic business books. Like um, I loved all of the late '80s, you know, corporate raider books, like *A Predator's Ball*, *A Den of Thieves*. I obviously love Michael Lewis. I assume. That everyone. That's just a default given. (laughs) It's like you need to begin to ask, like, what's your favorite Michael Lewis book, as opposed to, (laughs) uh, I will tell.
0: I often tell people, I know you've read Flash Boys and The Big Short and Mm -hmm. Moneyball, but have you read
1: a new, new thing? Because a lot of people skip that.
0: It's a really, really good book.
1: Yeah, I think in a like in a funny way, at the time that was among his, you know, you know, uh, a better received books. You know, because be. like, because like he. I had, don't think it is as, as it was as popular yeah, as well I mean, read like, as some of the other ones. Yeah, I mean, but you know, he had had Lyre's Poker, which was great, and then that you know, uh, you know, uh, uh, made a splash like on the release, like the new new thing did. Um, You know, I love uh, Boomerang. I think that's my favorite one of his. That's his a uh, collection of, of Vanity Fair. Right. It's just, I love the story of him so going funny. to
0: the Greek monastery.
1: <laughs> right how how astonishing is that tale that whole thing i mean i remember in the in in the germany chapter i was you know well crying tears you know so i mean you know i love that kind of writing the mm-hmm. uh, tracy kidder you know michael lewis i loved uh, what's the
0: tracy kidder uh
1: book? well well so he did a uh, soul of a new machine right mm-hmm. so you know that was like among his um um his first book um he's like i'm among like the first, like of these, like immersion journalist types. So, mm-hmm. um, I think my favorite of his is a recent one, uh, Mountains Beyond Mountains." It's about a uh, a uh, uh, Paul Farmer, the the Doctors Without Borders guy. Uh-huh. But he did House, um, Hometown. I mean, he's a he's a fantastic writer. It sounds
0: like you're, you've worked your way through the whole genre. I wrote yeah, I wrote incredible. all three down. And, any um, Any anybody else
1: stand out? Um, I would say. You know, like when young people come to talk to me about well, value investing, I'm always shocked when they have not read The Snowball. Mm-hmm. You know, they'll have read the Lowenstein book, which is great. They'll like, like have read, like- which was one of
0: the first. Lowenstein tells us so. He was a guest on the show. Mm-hmm. He tells a story that he went to Buffett about having access in order to do the book, and Buffett says you're probably better off without access and and hearing what other people have to say instead of me telling the story. And he said it was good advice. The book turned out to be much better
1: otherwise. Yeah. It's a it's a great book. Making but, of a capitalist, is that yeah. right? You know, or the making of a of a modern cap, of, modern of, cap right. of an American capitalist. But um but the snowball has the access and the access is incredibly valuable and it blows my mind that these, you know, well uh, young kids who are obsessed with Buffett have not read that book. I think it's a shame that like that book is not um, like as popular as it should be, the making of an
0: American capitalist. Well, I mean, the it's five star reviews and it's it was extremely well reviewed. I thought it sold pretty well, but uh, certainly not nothing like um, when Genius failed, which was his. Oh well, I'm talking you
1: know, about the this uh, the Snowball as the oh okay it was gotcha. the big yeah. one you know I'm, like I'm the gonna, Alice Schroeder. How how did Snowball sell? I think it did well but i think like they were kind of a banking on buffett uh supporting it mm-hmm. and like he ultimately like withdrew his like um you know his involvement and um, alice she, schroeder has been working with him for forever right she's uh yeah but i think it, like at some point like they had a falling out and uh, you know i mean it's funny so this year like i um i go to the the Berkshire um, Hathaway meeting every year, but this oh, really? year, but it was the, like the first time that I did the book thing, and there's all these book events, and that book was invisible at that meeting. Really? Yeah. And I that, didn't know that. I didn't know they had a falling out. I thought. Yeah, uh, and it's the best one. It's 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 just um. Just there, like, are some vignettes in there, like you know, you know when, like the like this like uh, the Solomon aboard uh, will tries like to tell Charlie Munger like about. Mm-hmm. like the things that like that they've uncovered and he let you know immediately will see through all the bs and begins like to ask all the like the like like who talked to whom will win you know who did you know it just i mean all of these um inside stories in that book are incredible in in snowball yeah
0: oh, i actually have not read that you got to read it <laughs> i'm going to put that on my list uh you mentioned munger have you read a uh, poor charlie's almanac i have it's great it's yeah. it's um <laughs> It's on my night table at home. <laughs> it's a tome. I'm yeah. slowly
1: working. My well, like way you just got to read the speeches, mm-hmm. you know. But it's funny. I mean, I I mean, I love that stuff, but I do think that sometimes, you know, well, from an investing perspective, like that we as an industry, um, overdo, like the kind of uh thinking clearly stuff. I think it's important. Like like like, uh, for individual investors, like, like, uh, like to understand the nature of misjudgment and, and psychological bias. But at the same time, I think like that we, as an industry have like, uh, perpetrated this idea that if that if I pick stocks that I'm like, that it's like a game of wits and I'm like, like the wiser guy than the person on the other side of the trade. and and like to me, the longer that you do it, the more that you realize that like, you're just well trying to not make mistakes and, right. and to do uh, your Charlie homework. Ellis
0: unforced errors are what yeah. kills most uh, most investors.
1: Any other books before we uh, go on
0: to some more questions? I mean, I could talk books for hours.
1: Yeah, I mean, that, like I really love uh, you know pop science books, and I and 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 I love music books. Yeah.
0: So give me one of each.
1: Okay, so. So, there's two great music books, Please Kill Me, which is like an oral history of punk rock, and then (laughs) The Motley Crue memoir, you know, written by Neil Strauss, is incredible. Uh, Pop Science, I love. Wait,
0: before you move beyond music, Mm -hmm. I have a few books to ask you some questions. Sure. So, David Burns, Musicology. I didn't read it. You should read it. I know it's really. Well, see, I'm interesting.
1: behind now because of because but, of writing the book of, of doing my book. Writing a book puts yeah, you behind, like the,
0: like the Patty Smith. I haven't read. Like haven't read the David Byrne. I have Chris. So I haven't read Chrissy Hines. It's also it's on a. It's not on the night table. It's on the dresser, which is the the next pile. The other book that's really kind of interesting. It, it it sort of predates you a little bit is uh, Nick Hornby, uh, High Fidelity. Yeah. If you've never read that. It's... Yeah, nope, I have. Oh, it's you great. have? Yeah.
1: Fantastic, right? And it's actually in the movie. Um, you know, my band um, has a poster in their record store. Oh, really? Yeah. Oh, that's awesome. At the, at the time, it was extremely exciting. Like, oh, we, that's... Like, oh, we're making it big. Our poster's in this movie.
0: <laughs> First of all, I love that movie. It's For great. countless, countless reasons, um, not the least of which is when... You finally get to the end and Jack Black takes the stage. Yeah, the Everybody's head exploded at that point. <laughs> but uh, but I read the book years before and reluctantly went to the film because you know what it's like when you mm-hmm. read a book and then the movie is terrible. And then the movie is different enough that you could see they're trying for something else, but it's true enough to the attitude. Yeah, no, they both it, work. Yeah, yeah, it really really um two recommendations high fidelity, the book and high fidelity. Um, the movies. Um, so let's go
1: to popular science. Like, I love like the journalistic ones where they get out. So like, there's a book called this, this, uh, the song of the Dodo. Right? Okay. And it's about extinctions and, and, an extinction on, Dodo. um, extinction on islands. Uh-huh. And it's, it's just like, a, it's a really fun book. Like he travels like the world and he goes to like, to like all these islands and, um, Many years ago I
0: read Douglas Adams Last Chance to See. Mm-hmm. Yeah Same I, mean, thing. I read that but So you read you read so he just goes around and looking at these creatures that are on the verge of extinction extinction and some of whom, between the time he visited and the book came out mm-hmm. he said oh and since then you can't see this cuz it's
1: Yeah I mean I always thought like that well one day I would we'll take some time from work and do a science book mm-hmm. like but then I like I had a like a book idea about you know that's uh, something that I knew about, so like you know, and it that, made much more sense to write what you know. That's the yeah. classic.
0: Give me one more uh, science book.
1: I like the Beak of the Finch. That's also that's out there, sure. Yeah, it's a it's a little bit of like an inside account of these, um, you know, well, um, um, academic uh, researchers in the Galapagos. And sure, it gives you a feel like these people have devoted their lives. Like they go back to the the Galapagos every summer for thirty years, which is amazing, and it gives in you itself. a feel for kind of like how you know what committed you would have to be to be a scientist
0: it's insane so sounds to me like you're one of them newfangled
1: evolutionaries. (laughs) well i do like all those like like the stephen j gould books Mm -hmm. and like as a kid like i loved uh, darwin all that stuff Uh so Um, yeah i mean like the idea that like i mean even if you don't believe in darwin the book is just like to read the book and to see like his reasoning, it's an incredible learning experience. So, uh, it, I mean, it, how and can you not teach it, even if it's wrong? <laughs> it's, it, crazy. it's so
0: compelling. I don't know. I found it hard to get through that book and say, "Oh, all of this stuff is made up." Yeah, it's. A, I mean, it's
1: got that magical thing that some books have, where like you read it, and after like you read it, it just seems obvious. That well, that's right?
0: always the tell of a really brilliant idea. Yeah. Is that. How Your hindsight bias after the fact yeah, is totally. always, well, of course we believe this before. It's beforehand. like, I
1: intuitively know this, obviously. <laughs>
0: there, there's a wonderful book if you want to look into, so this is all biology, if you want to look at the physics side, mm-hmm. James Glick did a book called Chaos, and right. after you finish that, you're like, oh, of course, how, 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 how else could you have looked at this? When going into it, you had no idea <laughs> on, on the science of chaos theory as applied to physics, you you couldn't in a million years have imagined that and then afterwards it's like, oh, of course. It it's that same sort of uh, same sort of magic. Um, so let's let's talk a little bit about things. Let's I, I think we've covered books pretty well, right? Mm-hmm. Before before I move on. Let's talk a little bit about um what's changed since you've joined the hedge fund industry. You've been doing this for Better more than a decade and change. Mm-hmm. How have things changed on that side of of the street uh, since the early
1: two thousands? Sure. Well, in some sense, I'm not the right guy to ask because I work at a like a small fund that's like that's on the fringes. Mm-hmm. Um, but you know, to the extent I've seen things change, they've gotten a lot more mature, a lot more institutionalized. Mm-hmm. Um, as we talked about um, on the on on the radio segment, like when I got my you know, first job in the industry, like, like, you know, I mean, anyone on the trading desk, if they had an idea, like it could go in the portfolio and like, you know, well, you could write 13 D's and it was just a crazy time. And now it's a lot more institutionalized and, and, you know, with that will comes, I think like a lot of good things. Like I assume like risk controls are like like are way better. Um, I assume the blowups ups are less pedestrian, but then there's also, it's just like, you see this, you know, a pedigree matters now in this Mm -hmm. way that like, like it didn't before. If like you came out of a, of a good shop, then it's like, you know, makes a difference. Yeah. And so that 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 kind of thing is happening now. You see that on the
0: quant side as well. There's a lot of what you're, what you're. Yeah. Well, you came from
1: Renaissance. So like, you're going to be good at this. Right. You know, I don't, I, I mean, there's no, I mean, like in our business, it's a lot about how how hard you work. There's not lots of 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 a special sauce, you know mm-hmm. that that so. makes sense. So um
0: so we're down to our last two questions. These are my two favorite questions. I ask all of my guests. Mm-hmm. You mentioned occasionally you have millennials come to you. What sort of advice would you give to a millennial or someone just starting their career and and said to you, I'm interested in the career of finance. How how would you answer that question?
1: Yeah, well for the millennials like you know and my students like like the first thing I say is like all of the like the the clichés about we'll get to work first like in hard work are are totally true. Mhm. And the clichés for a reason. And you'd be surprised at you know we'll, um, how a few people act on them. Um, oh really? I think so. Um um I tell people you know that I mean, that ultimately you're like a smart kid and you have good judgment and like your judgment over time will develop. But at these early jobs and as like you learn the business, um, you're really being paid to do work, like to learn, to do research, like, like you're not being paid to be wise. And, and I think that's interesting. Like that, that's. You know, one thing that like I like I see a lot in my students is you know they want to sit and think big thoughts about a company, Uh like they're less inclined to like to do the hard work it takes to find the expert that's out there that can really explain it to you, and that's the way that our business works. You have to pay your dues. for Yeah, like you're doing work to find the experts. Like like you don't just like lean back in your chair and say I'm gonna Mm. yeah outwit the like the whole market. And so like like I really try to tell them. It's less about your you know wisdom and like 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 in judgment than you think. And at your first job, you're going to be paid to do hard work.
0: You're the grunt when you're starting out. yeah, you're, you're doing
1: and that's pretty much true in every profession.
0: Yeah. you start out as a lawyer. you're doing the grunt work in the library. It's miserable who
1: who wants to build six hundred
0: six three thousand hours a year and, and finance is not all that different. yeah, it's well,
1: like, I mean, uh, specifically in terms of a finance. Um I mean I don't give a lot of advice on if it's the right job or the I mean I mean only they know that. Mm-hmm. I mean obviously investing is extremely fun and it's a great job but um I do think they need to be in it cuz they like doing it. I mean if you go in it just for the money you're going to be
0: sadly I, disappointed.
1: I'm sure that you've seen this where like like you'll t- I mean in fact like I talked to someone well not that long ago that was like an undergraduate that was extremely into biology. mm mm-hmm. Mhm. And like, you know, they had this whole idea of like, well, I'm going to get like a master's in this, like, I'm not going to get a PhD uh, because, you know, what I want to do is advise either, well, funds or investment, you know, well, bankers on, well, biotech stuff. So I'm like, well, why do you want to do that? You know, why would you want to be an investment banker for, for biotech? He's like, well, like, you know, yeah, well, you can make a lot of money. And I was like. I mean, that's like, what are you thinking? If you're like a 19-year-old and you love science, like before just like just like 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 deciding to be an investment banker, like well maybe you should pursue science. So like you gotta be in advice. It's like you gotta be in it for the right reasons. I think.
0: I I that I think that is very astute, and you you can hardly go wrong telling people if you follow your passion, it's gonna take you to the right place. But if you do this for the money. May not work out so
1: well. Yeah, I hope that's true. I don't. I mean, you know, I, you know what do we know? <laughs> do I, <you> know? <laughs> I think that's
0: true. And and what you said is fairly consistent with lots of what our guests have said. Mm-hmm. Is if you if you're just doing something for the money, it's a job, it's a labor, and when you do something because you really are passionate about it, you love it, the money will come eventually, and you're you won't be miserable. Mm-hmm. Having the money, being miserable, and then making a decision to shift. Twenty years later is is a much bigger challenge than gradually ramping up the cash. And our last question: What is it that you know about value investing, activist investing, um, and others that you wish you knew fifteen years ago when you uh, were just getting out of school?
2: Hmm.
1: I think it's probably that same point of like, I think that like that back then I bought into this idea like of you know well I'm going to um, outwit the market. As opposed to the, like the idea of like I'm gonna like do a lot of hard work and we'll try not like to make well too many dumb mistakes and I think that like in investing it's a lot about just avoiding the disasters. Jeff, thank you so much. This has been terrific. Uh, I appreciate you being so
0: generous uh, with your time. If you enjoyed this conversation, be sure and look up an inch or down an inch on Apple iTunes, and you can see any of the other. 100-plus conversations we've had. Uh, I would be remiss if I did not thank my booker, Taylor Riggs, uh, Charlie Vollmer, who is, I guess, technically our uh, producer when he's not busy um, blowing up things in his kitchen uh, accidentally, and Michael Batnick, who is our head of research. I'm Barry Ritholtz. You've been listening to Masters in Business on Bloomberg Radio.